If you are brown, you may have heard some familiar stereotypes about boys and their moms. They love their moms, but maybe a little bit too much. I actually recently learned that this syndrome of mama's boys in brown culture has a name. It's called the Raja Beta syndrome, which literally translates to king son syndrome. But this is not just a brown thing, so keep listening. In fact, it has a name from a psychological standpoint too, called enmeshment. You've heard of this dynamic before, for sure. You've got the strong-willed mother, the doting son, lack of boundaries, and maybe even a lack of emotional maturity. While there are definitely exceptions, I have heard this same story way too many times. Why does this happen so consistently? And why is it always the moms of sons that tend to cause problems in relationships? Let's do a deep dive. Masala Takes, where I share my unfiltered takes on stories from the internet and topics related to culture, community, identity, and human dynamics. I started digging into some relationship red flags with a concept called love bombing in an episode a few weeks ago, and I'm continuing that today with the topic called enmeshment. We're going to be talking about Desi sons, their moms, and the Raja Beta syndrome. Enmeshment is a psychological condition that describes a dysfunctional relationship between two people. This is one where boundaries are blurred and there's a strong dependency formed. There's also a lack of general awareness and development. Today we're going to be talking about why the mom and son enmeshment is so common amongst Desi families. To really explain this concept, I'm going to be telling it in a storytime format. I actually wrote a fictional story about a very specific example of a mother and son enmeshment that covers some of the themes that came up in my research on this topic. It is an entirely fake story with fake names, fake people, a fake storyline. So any resemblance to anyone whom you know is purely coincidental and probably just based on this cultural phenomenon. Let me know what you think about the storytime format and whether you prefer this or whether you prefer the love bombing episode for a couple of weeks ago, because it is going to determine how I do more of my red flag episodes in the future. So definitely comment, reach out to me, let me know. And now let's get started. This story starts with Aruna. Aruna grew up in a traditional family in Chennai. Her father worked and her mother stayed at home taking care of the family. As the only daughter of her parents, she was entirely spoiled and protected. She learned Carnatic music, got her degree in economics, and she had a mild and agreeable temper. Also, as the only girl in the family, she was taught to cook and clean and take care of everyone around her. None of these things were choices. They were just an expected part of growing up as a girl in the 70s and the 80s. Any sense of an independent spirit that she had was squashed by a very familiar phrase, once you get married, you can do whatever you want, but while you live under my roof, you've got to follow my rules. When Aruna turned 21, there was a nervous excitement in the air. With zero experience in making decisions, standing up for herself, or having relationships, Aruna was arranged to marry a 29-year-old man named Danush. Aruna thought about her closest cousin Kavita, who was just married in the year prior. Her husband was this kind and gentle man, and they moved abroad where Kavita was encouraged to even pursue further education. They were so happy, and Aruna wanted that for herself. She wanted to do all the things that she was told that she could do after she got married, all that independence that she was promised. So her wedding was held in this open courtyard where she cast shy glances to her soon-to-be future husband. After they got married, Aruna and Danush moved out into this small apartment. She didn't have to live with her in-laws which already felt like independence a lot of her other family members didn't have. But it became quickly clear that there was a bit of a power imbalance. 
Her much older husband had already established himself in his career. He had a close circle of friends. And after being brought up and taught that it was her role to maintain the family, Aruna and Dhanush quickly fell into these familiar gender-based roles. Aruna did have a small part-time job at the time, but she was in charge of homemaking, while Dhanush was in charge of making money for the family. Now, Dhanush wasn't a bad man at all. He would occasionally get angry, and he really didn't like when Aruna expressed sadness or distress or loneliness. It just made him so uncomfortable. She was simply expected to happily fall into this role. So with everything that Aruna knew, that's exactly what she did. For the next three years, Aruna worked and cooked and cleaned, became friends with other wives, and lived relatively peacefully. She would give her in-laws the utmost respect in the traditional sense and would do exactly what they wanted. They visited frequently, so their presence was heavily felt in the home. Without even realizing and recognizing what happened, Aruna found herself again in a relationship where she lacked autonomy. She couldn't make big decisions, and her independent spirit, that was once so brightly lit at a younger age, was officially squashed. Sometimes she did feel lonely and unfulfilled, and she couldn't quite figure out why. She had a great deal of respect for her husband, she was well taken care of, What more could she ask for? And divorce, that wasn't even a part of the question. It was such a taboo topic. She should in fact be grateful. So she continued on in complacent and ignorant bliss. She then got pregnant. And when she had a boy nine months later, everyone was overjoyed. While she never said this out loud, she was relieved that she had had a son and not a daughter. Her in-laws prayed for an heir to their lineage, of course. But she knew that a daughter of hers would one day leave her. She would have to go to her in-law's family, her husband's family. But a son? A son would be hers forever. That empty feeling that she was feeling for so many years, she was sure that her son would be the one to fill that void. Aruna was now 24 years old, and she had now lived an entire life devoid of true emotional fulfillment. She craved intimacy. She craved to have someone to support her, hear her out. And her son whom she named Sanjay, seemed to be the answer to everything she had ever wanted. She knew that her father and her husband were not going to play a role in raising this boy, and suddenly she was granted an incredible amount of independence, an incredible amount of autonomy, something that she had never had before. This power felt amazing. As a young girl with emotional immaturity, she did raise her son well. She raised her son to be a sweet boy, but she also raised her son to meet her needs. And that's where things would start to get a little complicated. Aruna was emotionally needy. So as her son got older, she started to rely on Sanjay more and more to meet these needs. Her son would help her around the house, talk to her about her problems, talk to her over meals while Danish was at work. And her son would give her both emotional and physical affection. Honestly, her favorite moments would be when Sanjay would run and hug her when she cried. And she fell into this familiar pattern of getting validation from Sanjay during emotional outbursts, such a big pressure to put on a child. In fact, she started intentionally contriving these outbursts to feel that burst of validation. And this happened so organically, Aruna didn't even realize that that's what she was doing. Life was so busy. She wasn't in therapy. She wasn't reflecting on her generational trauma. She was just kind of living life. And Sanjay? Well, Sanjay was polite. He did well in school. So there was no real reason to even recognize that something wrong was happening. She would get this incredible amount of joy watching her son participate in her morning prayer rituals. After this ritual, she would give her son a hug and a kiss and wish him the very best in life. While Sanjay wasn't that interested, 
he did begrudgingly wake up 15 minutes early every morning to join his mother. And as a reward, his mother would give him so much validation and love. Aruna would tell him that the only reason that she did these prayers was for Sanjay and for Sanjay's success. This put so much pressure on Sanjay, but a part of Sanjay kind of liked it. He liked the attention. And the reason was that a lot of the validation that Sanjay got was actually tied to the way Aruna felt. As he got older, Sanjay just wanted to sleep in and skip the morning prayer ritual. But Aruna would get upset to the point of tears. Do you not love me anymore? Do you not respect me? So after what could only be considered as emotional blackmail, Sanjay would be back up again the next day, 15 minutes early, fulfilling his role to meet his mother's needs. His mother would look proudly at this amazing boy she raised, one that would always be hers. Now, Danush, during this time, continued to fulfill his role as a husband by working and making money and taking care of the family. But with Sanjay now filling the role of meeting Aruna's emotional needs, Danush kind of continued to slip into this backseat role. He was enjoying this emotionless, drama-free experience with a side of delicious hot meals. Aruna and Sanjay grew what we now call an enmeshed relationship. The Raja-Beta syndrome here was on full display. Aruna had an unhealthy emotional attachment to her son and vice versa. Personal boundaries were blurred, their identities were tied into each other, and ironically, similar to what Aruna experienced, she had kind of accidentally raised Sanjay in the same way, where he too, at home, did not have a lot of autonomy. He didn't get to decide if he wanted to wake up for prayers. He didn't get to decide what would bring him joy. It was all about Aruna's feelings. And because of these familiar gender-based roles, when Sanjay expressed feelings, they were often suppressed. Similar to how Aruna's feelings made Danush uncomfortable, Sanjay's feelings made Aruna uncomfortable. Culturally, men were not really allowed to express themselves emotionally. And this allowed Aruna to kind of take on that emotional leadership in their relationship. She was the authority on all things emotional drama, which was kind of unhealthy because Sanjay also didn't really learn how to express his emotional needs and to get his emotional needs fulfilled. Now, this enmeshed behavior took a big turn when Sanjay left for college. Aruna started showing a lot more undressed with Sanjay out of the house, and Danush started to become involved, and he really didn't want to. That's what Sanjay was for. He should love his mom, right? That's what he's been doing his whole life. So when Aruna cried about how Sanjay didn't call her every day and Sanjay didn't visit on the weekend, Danush started enforcing this enmeshed behavior. Come home, Raja Beta, he'd say. Your mother is sad. She's crying. It's so easy to just call her once a day to make her happy. Why can't you do that much after everything we've done for you? So Sanjay would guiltily oblige. And when he called, after getting lectured for not messaging enough and getting in trouble, his mom would be overjoyed. And that made Sanjay feel good. With his dad also reinforcing this behavior, it was kind of nice to have his validation too. This emotional closeness is beyond what one would consider healthy. Sanjay wasn't even reaching out to his mom because he was excited to tell her about his day. He was reaching out to his mom so that he could meet his mom's emotional need of just hearing his voice. And that's such a huge responsibility. Sanjay started to feel resentful. His friends at college didn't have to call every day. Their moms weren't on their backs. So he started to set some boundaries. It was so uncomfortable that he soon decided it wasn't even worth it. He'd just call once a day and get his parents off of his back. 
Sanjay graduated with honors. He did well, and both Aruna and Tanush proudly stood by him at his graduation. He started working in an engineering firm when he met Pooja. Pooja lived with her parents, and Sanjay got a small apartment close to his work in a city a few hours away from his parents. They lived apart, so it was easy for Sanjay to maintain a level of communication and emotional support that his mom needed to feel happy and at peace. But as Sanjay and Pooja's relationship got more serious, things started to get messy with his mom. He told his parents about Pooja. She was from Mumbai, where he was now working, and she spoke Marathi. She was also an engineer, independent and strong-willed, and immediately Aruna was concerned. Who is this woman who is going to take my son away from me? And just as Aruna predicted, after Sanjay and Pooja got engaged, Sanjay started calling less. Sanjay, for the very first time, said no to the biannual family temple trip because it happened to coincide with Pooja's birthday. Aruna was beside herself emotionally. Danush called his son and begged him to come. Please, your mother won't stop crying. We've gone to this trip every year. Why are you letting this girl get in the way of family? There was no consideration at all that Pooja was Sanjay's family in the same way that Aruna was Danush's family. But Aruna was so emotionally enmeshed with Sanjay, she was jealous. She was jealous as if her partner was cheating on her. She was angry that Pooja, who did no work in making Sanjay the amazing man that he was, was getting to reap all of these benefits. For what? And she was stuck where she started, alone and emotionally starved. After the wedding, Aruna tried even harder to establish roles that would keep her emotionally connected to her son. None of this, by the way, was based on actually forming any sort of healthy relationship. Aruna would insist that Sanjay and Pooja would visit Chennai for every important function. And she would make side remarks to Sanjay about how Pooja was uncultured, she didn't understand family, she wasn't dressed appropriately. She would make comments on how Sanjay had spent so much time with Pooja's family because they all lived in Bombay. Why couldn't they all be present for the couple of days that she was spending in Chennai? Once, Pooja heard her mother-in-law comment on how things would have been so much easier if Sanjay just had an arranged marriage like his cousin. They could all live together and be much happier. Sanjay knew that his cousin and his cousin's wife were both miserable. But in that moment, he said nothing. At night, Pooja was livid. Why couldn't Sanjay just stand up for her? Well, Sanjay explained what he had known his whole life. He said, my mom's just like that. She's not going to change. So why get ourselves all worked up? It doesn't bother me. I know the truth. Why is it bothering you? And in the case with these enmeshed relationships for the mother and the son, and in this case, Aruna and Sanjay, they were both kind of relatively content with how this dynamic had worked for them their whole lives. It's all they knew. And emotional blackmail was an easy way for Aruna to get exactly what she wanted from Sanjay. But for Pooja, she hadn't really experienced this growing up. The only emotional needs she had to ever meet really were her own. So Pooja started to challenge the system, which only created more problems all around. Sanjay, for the most part, did understand Pooja's perspective. He too would get frustrated about having to join certain events or trips or behave in a certain way, but he was so indoctrinated to keep the peace with his mom, he would often forget to keep the peace with his wife. What is the big deal? Sanjay would often exclaim. He didn't even realize that he was pandering to the big deals for his mom, but ignoring the big deals for Pooja. 
In fact, the most infuriating to Pooja is when Pooja would express one simple need and Sanjay would say, Oh my God, you are just like my mother. No woman can ever give me a break. Sanjay felt overwhelmed, but Pooja was his wife. Pooja was his family, but he was meeting the wrong person's needs for so long, he felt emotionally tapped out. Pooja was the one who was hurt the most by all of this. She worked hard and she had even more independence before she got married. Eventually, after years of marital issues, they joined couples therapy where Sanjay was forced to work through some of these cycles and through boundary setting. And he had learned that the best way to deal with emotionally immature parents was to repeatedly and calmly set boundaries and to not give in to the emotional blackmail or the drama and to continuously fuel that behavior. Pooja had to learn how to get over the resentment and the heavy feeling in her gut that her mother-in-law would probably never really like her as much as she liked her son. It was hard work, but they got through it. Pooja and Sanjay had twins a couple of years later, one boy and one girl, and they had vowed to continue to go to therapy and to continue to make sure that the behaviors of their past did not impact the kind of parents that they wanted to be. Now this is enmeshment. And if you haven't seen a version of this in your own relationship, you have definitely seen this in relationships around you. And here's my take, and I say this as a completely non-professional, I'm just really interested in human dynamics. First of all, I do think that this does proportionally impact Desi families more than some other cultures, specifically because of arranged marriage, the taboo around divorce, and the strong patriarchal culture that still prevails today. So I don't think mother-in-laws are bad or evil in any way at all. I think we're all just responding to our upbringing and the experiences that we've had. And our generation just has this amazing privilege where we get to reflect on that and be better and to break these cycles that have been continuing probably for generations. We have to remember that a lot of our moms were married way too young to older people. They often didn't work or they didn't have rich careers. And they also never had the sense of ownership of their lives that women get to have today. It was probably really hard for them. And a lot of them were probably starved of emotional validation. So since we've been married, both me and my husband have been fairly equally employed and equally independent. But for the past year, a little over a year, I haven't been working and I haven't been making the same level of income. And just that disparity has caused so many different types of conversations and such a power imbalance in the relationship. I can't imagine if that was my only option, how my relationship would have been. And this is coming from a world where my husband is a feminist and I've lived with equality and I've lived with independence and I still felt the impact of a power imbalance. And I feel like a lot of people do who are in a similar position. So it must have definitely been so hard for our moms. And that's what they're all kind of reacting to. They didn't intentionally create unhealthy relationships with their sons. They just probably didn't know any better. And they probably didn't even know what harm they were causing. They also probably saw other moms doing exactly the same thing. One thing about the older generation is they do tend to have a harder time with things like change and accountability. These are things they've never really had to deal with. So in this case, it's actually the responsibility of the sons in these cycles to recognize that they're in these enmeshed relationships, to recognize that they are the Raja Betas of this family, and to take the steps to kind of get out of it, break cycles, and change things for their families. 
Men who choose to get married need to recognize that their partner is their new family and that they need to learn how to consistently set boundaries to make their partner happy. They need to learn how to prioritize their partner's needs, the things that are important to their partners over anybody else, actually, for that matter. And frankly, if they're not ready for that type of commitment, they should not make it. They should stay at home with their parents and continue to fulfill the emotional needs of their parents if that's what they want to prioritize in life, which is also totally fine if that's the choice they want to make. So I know as someone who is fairly new with setting and enforcing clear boundaries that they really are incredibly hard to set. They're hard to enforce, they're hard to follow up on, and dealing with emotionally immature or emotionally needy people makes boundary setting even harder, harder than it even needs to be. Now, if the person setting the boundary grew up never setting a boundary, they grew up without autonomy, they grew up without leadership over their own life, this is a really challenging skill to learn. Like, I think learning the skill should be akin to learning any skill that Sanjay learned in engineering school, it requires time, it requires effort and consistency, and probably getting a toolkit under their belt so that, you know, people who have these challenges are able to set these boundaries effectively and know what tools they can pull from if it's not working for them. This is something that I have been working on a lot over the past couple of years, so I know how challenging this can truly be. And if you're also in the same boat as me and a lot of people who grew up without setting boundaries and having them enforced, say this aloud with me. I am capable of doing hard things. I am capable of doing hard things. You know what you need to do, so just do it. Talk to a therapist, get help, you know, lean into the professionals and do what you need to do to set boundaries for your family. So before we finish this episode, I really wanted to share a story that I found on Reddit, on my favorite subreddit, Am I the A-hole, that kind of presents some of these themes. And I'm not even sure if this is a Desi story or not. So I feel like this theme really is common amongst families across different ethnicities and different groups. So it's definitely not necessarily a Raja Beta problem. So let's get started on this story and then we'll wrap up this episode. Am I the A-hole for going home after my in-laws excluded me from a dinner at a restaurant? I, female 26, went on a family trip with my in-laws two weeks ago. My mother-in-law always thought that I'm a bit ignorant and backwards, and just because I come from a lower-class family compared to hers, that I have no etiquette. After we arrived to this hotel, they arranged to visit a fancy restaurant for dinner. My husband avoided telling me, and I learned it last minute after he had already gotten dressed. I asked where he was going, and he said that him and his family were going out to eat, but I wasn't invited because his mom assumed that since I wouldn't be familiar with the food and how to eat it there at the restaurant, that would be better for me to stay in and eat at the hotel. I didn't argue, I just let them go, and then I packed and took the first flight home. He freaked out and called many times, and when he found out that I went home, he blew up and called me ridiculous and irrational to do this. He even said that I acted in an ungrateful manner and I embarrassed him in front of his family after he literally begged to have me go on this trip. We argued and he started giving me the silent treatment after he came home. Moreover, his family are indirectly criticizing me on Facebook about what I did. Did I overreact? So there's a couple of edits, but he didn't even mention what type of food they ordered. And originally, the family didn't plan on having her go along, but her husband begged them to invite her. Apparently, the brother-in-law's girlfriend was also not invited. They also said that they paid for her expenses, so she didn't want to act like she was being needy or greedy. I feel like there's so many red flags with the story, it's insane. 
I think it's absolutely wild on a group vacation to leave one person out of a dinner and then not even let her know that they're going to dinner. Like, what was their plan? That she was just going to sit in the hotel alone and just be happy by herself when everyone was out clearly getting dressed up? Or was the idea to just like steamroll her at the last minute so she wouldn't have the opportunity to like get dressed or defend herself? Either way, I think getting out of that dinner was such a bad idea. And I personally don't think that this lady is an a-hole at all for just leaving the trip and flying back, even though her in-laws did pay for her. And like, I think from the husband's perspective, he's like, I fought for you to come here. You should be happy that I fought for your presence, even though my parents didn't want you here. But it's like, that's just not enough. You can clearly see an enmeshed relationship happening here because this mother has set some clearly unrealistic boundaries and requests and the son is just blindly pandering to them without taking a moment to recognize what his wife wants and how his wife might feel and he should have actually said hey if you want to go to this fancy restaurant and you don't want my wife to come we have invited her on this vacation I've invited her on this vacation so either my wife comes or you guys can go and I will get dinner with my wife at the hotel the fact that the son even thought that it was a great idea to go is just absolutely crazy to me. Now, even if you disagree with me that, you know, maybe this wife shouldn't have gotten on a flight and maybe this wife shouldn't have gone home and this wife is overreacting, I still feel that it is up to the son to stand up for his wife and to be like, you know what? It might have been an overreaction, but she was just reacting to something that happened to her that was clearly unjust and unfair and fairly a little bit classist and potentially racist. I don't think in any situation does it make sense for his son to be fulfilling his mom's emotional needs of wanting this special dinner, excluding both his wife and his brother's girlfriend. So this is something that she's doing with both of her sons. It's clearly a pattern. It's clearly an enmeshed behavior. And I would say if this was a Desi family, both the sons in this family are victims of the Raja Beta syndrome. So that is my take. I'm just going to quickly skim the comments to see if there's something that I didn't already say. So let's see what they say. So the, so the top comment here has like 30,000 votes. So it's really a popular post. But the second top comment just says you need a new husband. And you know what? Like, I do think that divorce should be taken seriously. Um, and this is a masala take. But I think that divorce is actually a great thing if you get married to somebody and you realize that there's not a lot of compatibility. I don't know if this was the only one example and someone was like, throw your whole husband away. I would be like, you know what? Maybe talk to your husband and see if you can work it out. But from the fact that this wife got a flight and left, this has probably happened multiple times before. This has probably been the story of their relationship. And these types of enmeshed dynamics, they don't just happen in one scenario or overnight. This is a part of a dynamic that just exists. So it's actually something worth considering even though they're married, to be like, is this working out for me? Because I'm clearly not being prioritized here. And, and the thing is, like, I'm like very anti-silent treatment. I actually consider it to be a red flag. And I can't even pinpoint why other than the fact that they just make me so uncomfortable. I think it's kind of like a power move, you know, because there's no opening a dialogue. There's no having a conversation. It's just like, mm, I'm just not going to talk about it. And you have to deal with it. And the other person just kind of ends up feeling crazy after. So I just don't like silent treatments. And if that's also a trend on how this person deals with conflict or on how this person deals with his mom being upset, something worth considering. One of the comments says, the irony that your in-laws boorish behavior of excluding you in such a way 
and for such extremely lame classist reasons is probably the lowest class thing that they could do, not the a-hole. One of the comments says, I think you should reply to their Facebook post with your side of the story. And I actually disagree there, even though this comment was quite popular. Um, I just don't think it's worth it and it's going to change anyone's thinking if you also fight fire with fire, especially in something as frankly classless since they went there as complaining about their daughter-in-law on Facebook. Like that's just so dumb and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even bother to get involved because I feel like just the fact that they're on Facebook making this complaint makes them look pretty bad. Overall my take on, you know, enmeshment, the Raja Beta syndrome and these relationships in general is that getting married, getting into a relationship, this is a choice and when we make that choice, we need to recognize that that person that we are with is going to be our de facto immediate from family. And we need to be able to stand up for them and to stand by them. And if that's something that we can't do, we should be strong enough to also leave and continue to prioritize the people that we prioritize. And if that's your mom, that's totally cool. I think we teach people how to treat us. And when it comes to extended family of of one party, we also teach our extended family how to treat our new family, how to treat our friends, how to treat the people that matter to us. So we need to treat the people around us with respect and dignity, but we also need to expect that from the extended family in our lives. Like if my husband started treating me badly and making jokes about me in front of his friends, his friends would have an open door to do the same about me. But if my husband treated me with respect and dignity, then his friends would probably do the same they would kind of fall into line. And if they didn't, and if my husband was like, hey, you don't talk about my wife in that way, they would probably fall into line. They would probably treat your wife or your partner, your kids or your friends the way that they should be treated. It really is up to each of us to expect and kind of demand the level of respect and dignity that we deserve. Now, I have so many more stories I found around topics on enmeshment and so many more interesting conversations that we can have. So if you want a full episode just with stories on the Raja Beta syndrome, Let me know and I will definitely do that in the future at some point. But also, do you know anyone who's in this type of relationship? Are you in this type of relationship? Are you the Raja Beta? Comment down below. I would love to hear from you. You can find us everywhere where you listen to and watch podcasts as well as TikTok and Instagram if you prefer short form content. So find us everywhere at Masala Takes and we will see you next week with another episode. Talk to you soon. Bye. The past couple of years for me have been wild. I've had two major job changes. I started an art business. I even had a baby and went on maternity leave. But through all of that, I managed to keep painting and singing. I even started a podcast. And the thread holding this entire period of my life together has been this Shree's Arts Journal. This journal has specifically curated prompts designed to help all of us be way more intentional with our time and to manifest the future of our dreams. In my journal from four years ago, I had drawn myself sitting on a couch looking at a lake, and today I literally have that exact lake view. In my journal from three years ago, I started to use the goal-setting pages to manifest being self-employed and having my own business. Within a few months, I had started my art business, and it happened by chance. In the journal entry I made in my first trimester, I had drawn myself living this maternity life where I could be a mom but still balance creativity and personal fulfillment, and I'm literally living that life today. There are so many specific questions in place to get us really thinking about what we want. I wasn't actively working on any of these goals, but my subconscious was definitely at work because I had written all of these things down. 
There are also a lot of prompts in place for reflection. I'm not the best personally at celebrating my personal wins, so seeing them all on one page has been really great for self-worth and for motivation. I have never been the most consistent person with journaling outside of my annual journaling period, and one thing I really love about the Shree's Arts Journal is that most of the prompts and the coloring book style affirmation pages are all free-flowing. They're just there when I'm ready to take a moment to look inwards. This journal was made for the busiest of us. There are literally no commitments. And this is the last year this journal will ever be in production. There are a very limited amount of these left, so make sure you check out the link in the description and use the code MASALA for $10 off. Let 2024 be our year of being more mindful and introspective. Again, use the code MASALA, M-A-S-A-L-A, for $10 off. Let's get back to the episode. <laughs> 